our first panel, uh, our first technical talk uh, this afternoon is Kelly Masada. Just in case we didn't see her enough yesterday talking about our three different projects, we'll give a little deeper dive uh, this afternoon. Kelly? Can everybody hear me okay? Mike, can you mute me back there? I'm just kidding. How is lunch? Does everybody need to stand up, stretch? I'm also a certified yoga instructor, so if you need to do a little yoga, I'm happy to lead that. A few vinyasas. Um, you know, I don't think doing three posters in one symposium is a, is a bad idea. I, I actually liked my posters. Um, <laughs> but as Joel said, I, I do want to sort of give you the wider picture as to how I came up with this research and where my head was at. So let me first, um, and I apologize for anybody who um, visited my posters last night. Some of this might be a repeat, so I'm sorry. Um, but let me first tell you a little bit about me. I'm a PhD candidate in Sirius. Um, I'm working under the direction of SPAF and Dr. Rogers. I also have an MBA in marketing. Don't hate the marketing people in your organizations. We're not that bad. And some of us can actually learn new tricks. I have, yes, that's a question mark, years in business, building strategic initiatives, because I'm not going to out my age, except to say that my daughter will be attending per, uh, Purdue in the fall. Um, and I bring a unique view to security. Um, I am a survivor of cyber stalking by somebody I worked with, um, somebody who is sadly still trolling me today. Um, but that sort of frames where I come from. Um, by the way, I'm two weeks from defense, so please be kind to me. Nobody ask hard questions. I'm getting ready for that. <laughs> All right, so when I started my PhD, I fully intended to research technology and how technology was used against victims of violence and harassment. But then I, really, I quickly realized that nonprofit organizations mission to help victims of violence are the ones being underserved by both the research community and by security professionals. So I decided instead of focusing on victims, plus it still felt a little too close to home, I decided to focus on the organizations that are charged to help them. So my research focuses on domestic violence organizations, human trafficking, and stalking. I do believe, though, that the research that I'm starting here will be able to be used across a broader spectrum of nonprofits. I first started thinking about these issues thanks to a conversation I had with an executive director of Transition House. This is a domestic violence shelter in Cambridge, Massachusetts. This is a good friend of mine. Um, I, I was also director of communications for the TOR project. Um, during my time at TOR, uh, we shared space with Transition House. So the people at Transition House were my friends. Um, and we often helped them with uh, helping victims understand how to use TOR and, and other things. So when I started on this PhD journey, I asked Risa to come sit on the porch of my house and have a glass of wine. And I said, this is what I'm thinking about. And she's like, yeah, you know, we need to help victims better. However, there's other things we can be thinking about. And then she said this to me. She said, we are equally at risk as the people we serve when they enter our space physically and online. 
I think it's often forgotten in a digital space. So it got me thinking that, yes, the victims that these organizations are serving are in need of understanding technology better and information security better, but who better to teach them how to do that than the first responders? So let's help them. So Risa continued the conversation talking to me about how she's overwhelmed with the technology, how she's overwhelmed with just basic stuff, never mind looking at information security within our organization. At one point, I said to her, I said, aren't donors, isn't your donor database valuable to you? She's like, Kelly, I can't think about my donor database when I've got women walking into my shelter who do not have a bed to sleep in tonight. So that's where the priority in information security was sitting in her head. So I thought, oh, okay, we have work to do here. Let's go do it. So my amazing committee gave me 30 days to write three papers for my preliminary exam. Thankfully, I got to pick some of the topics. So I wrote three papers. These were all my posters that some of you saw last night all centered around crisis organizations. I looked at the online communities, laws and regulations, and security breaches. I loved these, though I cried. When I submitted them, I cried my eyes out, because writing three papers in 30 days just about killed me, um, realizing that I'm far too old be, to be getting a PhD, but that's a whole other story. Um, but what was interesting was I realized that just like this image, these are pieces of a puzzle, pieces that don't quite fit together yet. So I started to think, what's the information security within crisis organizations from a broader perspective? So what I'm going to do is I want to just give you some of the results from these three papers and then share with you how that led me into my dissertation research. So I started looking at what are the unique characteristics of crisis organizations. As I mentioned, I spent lots of years, not lots, but more than a decade in the business environment. So I got to see what business environments are like. I wanted to know what was different about what crisis organizations were doing and how they were servicing their customers and how they were servicing their stakeholders and what made them unique. I wanted to understand the advancements in technology and the impact on um, the organization if there's a digital security breach. I looked at the laws, statutes, and regulations affecting crisis organizations and their pursuit of information security and privacy, as you can imagine, Privacy is a big flippin' deal for these organizations. I looked at what risks and benefits do online communities offer crisis organizations and the victims they serve. Wait to see how many organizations are on Facebook. Holy guacamole. Lots. And then I thought about what needs to be done to help. You know, getting this degree at this stage in my life, I love doing the research, but I want to go out there and do stuff. I want to go out and help people. So a lot of this kept driving me to the space of what we'll be able to do at the end. What will bring us to the next stage? So I started looking at the impact. The impact of information security incidents in these organizations. Sure, business operations. Just like any business environment, crisis organizations have um, you know, money transferring in and out. They have staff. They have physical security. They have all the things that regular businesses have. So if they ha were to have an um, information security incident, business operations would be affected. My friend from Transition House said to me, you know, Kelly, we have a lot of hits on our website from Bangladesh. I mean, like, a lot. 
And I said, oh, what are they doing? She's like, I don't know, and I don't want to know, because then I have to deal with it. <laughs> fundraising. As you can imagine, these small crisis organizations are all about fundraising. This is how they survive. They need to not only have the big dollars, usually grant money, federal grant money, um, but they also rely on the uh, fundraising of individual donors. Impact of sta uh, staff privacy and safety. If there's an information security incident, I'm going to give you some examples in a moment. There's a huge impact to victim services. Imagine if an organization had a DDoS attack. What would happen if their website went down when a woman needed, or a man, needed to get to that organization? What would happen? And the biggest impact for these organizations is trust, right? These, these organizations are servicing victims that are in crisis, human trafficking, stalking, domestic violence. And for some of these smaller organizations in our country, an information security breach could be both figuratively and literally fatal to the organization, to their staff, and to the people that they serve. So, of course, just like any good researcher, you got to look at the attackers. Who wants to get at these organizations? Because I had one of these people, so over the course of the past couple of years, I've talked to lots of organizations. I had this one woman say to me, Who's, who wants to attack us? We're helping people, right? Who do you think the number one attacker would be for a crisis organization? Throw it out, anybody? family member or an abuser, a trafficker, right? The bad guys, the people that are inflicting the pain on the victims, right? But you also have hackers, directed attacks, interesting and compromising the information security of that organization. For many human trafficking organizations, they have political implications. So we have to think globally about these um, attackers. Also, simple data mining attackers. If an attacker knows that there's a honeypot of donor lists in a crisis organization database that's wide open, wow, with little effort, they can just go in and get it. So as we all know, advancement in technology means that we're walking around with vulnerabilities and risks all the time. So what I'd like to do now is give you a few highlights from the research that I did in those three papers, and again, walk you through some of my dissertation research. But keep in mind, some of these organizations have all of these and then some. So first, striking a balance between servicing victims, privacy, and the laws. So what I did was I went out and I looked at what our current privacy laws are, what are the statutes, and what are the regulations around a lot of these issues, availability of public records. Because as you can imagine, that these things are impacting organizations today, just like in the general space. Never mind how this information is being transferred and stored digitally. I had one respondent from my dissertation survey that said, we don't hold any information online. Everything is in paper. Oh. Not sure I quite believe her, but that's also concerning. What's also interesting is that there are organizations that are working with court systems, that are using um, technology to be able to transfer information between 
domestic violence shelters in the courts real time. So if you have an abuser and a victim in the courtroom, they can access information right away. These systems, according to the research that I found for this paper, are not secure. Even the people who built them said that there are security vulnerabilities already there. So people are working with systems that are already broken. Online presence are a big deal because a lot of these organizations are putting personal information out there and they don't know what the impacts regarding privacy are in this realm. So let me give you an example. So I looked at the confidentiality statutes in the United States because, you know, as victims are talking to their service, to the crisis organizations, you want to know what am I saying that's being protected under the confidentiality statutes, right? But as you can see, between a domestic, uh, domestic violence shelter and a client, only nine out of 50 states in the United States have confidentiality statutes. This is basic statutes. It's not even talking about technology yet. Only three out of 50 states in the U.S. have human trafficking counselor and clients um, confidentiality statutes. So some of the people um, in my, my research world say, well, you know, Kelly, you're working in the soft side of security, right? Because you're looking at stuff like this. And I said, you know what? How can we help people understand the information security ramifications if we don't understand this part first? So understanding this helps us to be able to say, okay, well, we have holes here. By the way, how are you communicating with your victims? So that we can have a better sense of what the landscape is. Second, I looked at online communities. You know, building online communities for these crisis organizations is a big deal. Many, many, many of them have online presence. Oh my God, it was really funny. Some of them are using stuff I've never even heard of. One organization is using Tumblr. Do any of you know Tumblr? I'm like, why? You know, that's my first question is why are you using it? Um, in my dissertation research, I discovered that 90% of the organizations I surveyed are using Facebook. 90%. And yet, most of them that I've spoken to directly over the, the years I've been doing this research don't know what the security settings are. And more importantly, don't understand why they're using it. Also, 18 out of 20 crisis organizations that I looked at for this preliminary research um, do not have any privacy policies listed on their website. So they're not even putting out there, this is what we're doing as far as privacy is concerned. So I do like to ask uh, crisis organizations and people working for them, I'm like, so why are you using Facebook? Do you know what the number one answer is? Everybody's using it. So we have to have an online presence too. That's part of the problem. So there's lots of benefits for crisis organizations to have an online presence, right? Or an online communities. First of all, you've got victims all over the country, right? And they may not have access to shelters and resources close by. So having an online community helps to get people closer, removing geographic barriers. It also gives victims and advocates and people working in the space a place to share stories and collaborate. Hello? 
Um, it gives them a sense of empowerment, right? Because sometimes you feel very, very alone. If you're a victim of violence, you feel alone. And you want to have that community. Uh, online communities also give both advocates and service providers and victims a sense of anonymity. These are all important benefits. But to balance the benefits, there's also risks. So as everybody knows, when we're on our phones and you send a text message, how many times do you expect the response right away? Right? You text message your spouse or your, my teenagers, oh my god. Text message my teenagers, I expect a response. But if there's a delay in that response, it's not their fault. It's the fact that we've conditioned ourselves to want immediate reactions. The challenge for these online communities for crisis organizations is that if you have somebody in immediate crisis and they use these communities to reach out, there might be a delay in response, primarily because they don't have the resources to be able to manage these communities. There's also issues that they're coming up against around group disruption. If you've got lots of people in the chat room, they're coming up against issues where people are sort of going into the misery Olympics, my situation is worse, or even worse, putting out personal information into these forums that are supposed to be a place for people to collaborate, but end up being a place that uh, creates more risk. So last, my preliminary research examined information security breaches for crisis organizations. You know what was really interesting was that I was expecting like this plethora of research. And nothing. No news articles, no research, nothing. I'm like, okay, so are you telling me that crisis organizations are not being breached? Or is it that they're not, we don't know it, or they're not being reported, or what's going on? So for this paper, I focused a lot on just the broader nonprofit sector. And what I did was I took what I discovered there and I kind of mapped it against the crisis organization domain. Um, and I also took other breach examples too. And this is what I came up with. So information sharing is critical. Not just between crisis organizations and victims, but crisis organizations and courts, law enforcement, investigators, other service providers. A lot of victims need help finding housing, need help finding jobs. All of that information sharing is happening. A lot of these organizations are using Dropbox to share information. Oh, makes me really scared. Um, they also have a lot of donation processing. As I mentioned, fundraising is critical to their survival, right? Fewer than half of the organizations just for this preliminary research are using PayPal. Some of them are using systems I'd never heard of, and granted, they ne I need to do more research. But just from the get-go, it looked a little sketchy. Escape features, I'm going to show you that in a moment. But essentially, escape features are on the websites of these organizations. So that if you have a victim that might be um, living in the same space as their abuser or their trafficker, they can, if they're on the site, they can hit the escape button and it'll take them to CNN or weather.com or the Google page. Um, what I discovered is several of these escape features leave cookies. So if you have a reasonably savvy abuser, they're going to know that uh, their victim was using the site. Mobile devices. BYOD is a huge issue across organizations. Think about the impact for crisis organizations. You've got advocates that are going out there using their own phones. Monitoring eavesdropping software is one of the number one problems 
that domestic violence and human trafficking organizations are facing today, and they feel completely out of their league. They know that people are walking into their organizations with this stuff on their device, with the, um, this malware on people's devices, and they can't do anything about it. So we're trying to figure out how to um, unravel all of these pieces. So here's an example of an escape button. Has anybody ever seen these before? So some of, they seem to be very helpful, right? It's just like the Google privacy um, window that you can do, right? Everybody knows the Google privacy window. Great idea, but you know what that does? It puts a purple streak across, a purple stripe across the top to let you know you're in privacy mode. If you have somebody, an advocate or um, an abuser walking around, they're going to see that their victim is using privacy mode. So one of the conversations that I um, had with a, a friend of mine at Mozilla was, how can you change that so it's not so evident? So before I give you a preview of where this research has led me, I wanted to share with you the level of technical knowledge that I often run into when speaking in front of crisis organization groups. Many of you recognize this. This is a frequent locations feature on iPhones. Yes, nods of heads, yes. So think about, okay, if an advocate is using an iPhone, right? And she sits down, and she knows this, right? Because every time I talk in front of one person or 500 crisis organization folks, this is the first thing I teach them. I'm like, everybody who has an iPhone, take it out. We're going to walk through this process, right? And they all go, ooh, are you kidding me? People can see where I've been. So. I say to them, okay, now that you know this, the next time you're sitting with a victim, walk him or her through this. Because that's what it's all about. It's about teaching them on their devices to understand security better so they can pass it on. But this is the level of technical knowledge that we're dealing with when we're working with crisis organizations. So what I discover is that we can't use existing paradigms of information security when looking at crisis organizations and looking to help these people. But we can make some important changes. This preliminary research and my interactions with these organizations have helped to identify some immediate things to do. Guess what the first thing we need to do is? Stop scaring people. <laughs> you know, People think that anyone who works in IT, first of all, we're technical support for anyone in our families, right? The second thing is, is that we're going to talk about scary stuff. My daughters tell me all the time, please do not scare people, mom. Just tell them funny stories. Don't tell them scary stories, okay? But we have to stop scaring people. That's part of the barrier with working with organizations like these that I'm, that I'm trying to help is that I'm trying to show them that people who are in information security aren't scary. I don't wear black all the time. I purposely didn't wear black today. You know, we're not all sitting in a basement. We all can talk their language, understand their language, but basically we're not scary. Okay, so that's step number one. But we can also help them by understanding their unique environments. Crisis organizations and nonprofits generally are not like other business environments. So in order to be able to truly understand information security for them, we have to understand their unique environment. Secondly, dispelling the myth. You know, people out there in the world think that there's such a such thing as 100% security 100% of the time. 
How many of you believe that there's 100% security 100% of the time? Right? Not possible. Some of these people think that that's possible. They think that if they put all the security features on their Facebook page, that they will be safe until they talk to me and I tell them no. Okay? Define individual security. If we help users, whether they're crisis organization users or others, if we help them understand information security in small nuggets in ways that identify to them, they will be able to pass that on. That is empowerment. Investigate security solutions that fit the environment. So for a lot of these organizations, and some of my dissertation research brings this out too, is that they want to take the shiny thing off the shelf. Right? They want the coolest new firewall. They want the new intrusion detection. They want whatever their IT volunteer tells them to go by. What they didn't do is assess their environment. Right? Take a look at the risks and the vulnerabilities and assess and then buy what you need. We also need to examine the attackers and the vulnerabilities in more detail. But at the end of the day, to help organizations like this improve information security, we have to educate, train, and then empower them by not making it scary and other things. But this is just the beginning. So these three papers led me to realize what's really missing is an understanding where these organizations are today. So my illustrious committee, who I adore still today, maybe not in two weeks, but I do today, is that they said, they gave me the greatest advice. I got five slides into my proposal with this great plan of changing the world, right? What you can imagine is they said, get the degree first, then go change the world, not the reverse. So my dissertation is on identifying the current state of information security within crisis organizations. What I did was I created a survey using the NIST standard for cybersecurity. It's a great standard. It maps to other things. It maps to COVID. It maps to um, the ISO standards. So, and it was in a language that I could easily translate for the nonprofits and for these crisis organizations. So I used, uh, I facilitated the survey through three national organizations, sent it out to approximately 700 crisis organizations. Spaff said to me, he said, Kelly, get 56 responses. But don't be disappointed if you don't get 56. I'm like, oh, that's a challenge. I'm ready. Right? So I sent out the survey, and I'm like, OK, here we go. Seriously, every hour, almost around the clock, for three days, I watched that thing as responses came in. 222 responses. So now we have some data. Now we have something that we can look at to say, where are these organizations today? So the results have been somewhat predictable and somewhat surprising. However, what I wanted to show you were some of the examples of the technical knowledge that we're facing, again. So this woman, I'm assuming, yeah, I think it was a woman. Uh, was having problems clicking on the link to the survey. And as you can imagine, I was like, I need every response possible, right? So I sent her all these workaround solutions. And then literally, two minutes later, I get this back from her. Thanks for your quick response. I figured out the problem. It was my mouse pointer placement. She wasn't pointing it on the consent button on the survey. This is what we're trying to deal with. 
we can't talk to somebody like this about VPNs and firewalls. We have to help her understand information security in her language. Also, computers are, our computers are so old, nobody seems to want to crash in. That's a direct quote. Okay, crash in. Like somebody's going to come in with a bat. Okay, but again, to understand how to help these people, how to work with these organizations, we have to understand their paradigms. Am I okay on time, Joel? Okay, I'm wrapping up. All right, so look at information security working with victims. We can't just look at the technical parts. We have to have some Im imagination and we need to look at things hol holistically. So imagine by identifying the current state of information security within crisis organizations, we will have a necessary foundation to develop tools, processes, and technologies to assist these people and to help keep them safe. Not just the people in the organizations, but the people that they serve. This is what I'm aspiring to. This is why I'm doing this work. Also, information security, in my view, is not just about algorithms, codes, and devices. I did survive Professor Wagstaff cryptography course. Thank you very much. Um, but information security is not just about these things. It's about people, process, and technology. And we need more voices are required to make a difference. And I hope to be one of them in two weeks. Thank you. Thank you, Kelly.